0: So we're going to the book of Ephesians, and before we get there, and before we get really digging down deep to where I really want to go is about Christian living. What does it mean to be a Christian? What are the expectations that God has upon our lives whenever we call ourselves Christians, okay? But before we go there, I think it would be pretty important for us to dig down a little bit and just give a little historical context, a little historical perspective on the actual city and what Paul did whenever he ministered here and how it all became, okay? So, the city of Ephesus is where this is located and where we're going tonight. It was, one, it was home to one of the, the seven churches which is it's mentioned in the book of Revelation. Each church took on the name of the city in which it was located. There were seven cities that were located around the hub, which was known as Ephesus. Now, it was located in the province of Asia. Now, this is not the Orient, okay? The Asia that's referring to right here is modern day Turkey, that area right here. With the city of Ephesus, it it occupied a very strategic point right in the middle of the hub. It was at the mouth of the Castor River, which during this time there was no mechanized travel. So to be at the mouth of a river was a very, very important strategic place for a city to be, especially for commerce and people coming into the territory which it was leading into. Uh, Not only that, but it was on the route of a very important highway that led to all the surrounding cities, which the caravans used to move forth and go with the commerce of this city. Um, The ancient Romans and Greeks often vied for the city of Ephesus because not only was it an important commercial hub, it was also a military strategic point in the the whole province. Um, In terms of commercial importance, the city of Ephesus was actually only second behind Rome and Alexandria, which were two major commercial cities in the known world of that day. So it was a very important city. More than that, more than its commerce and its military strategic point, it was actually the religious center of the province of Asia. And the reason why it was the, it was the religious center was because of one thing and one thing alone, pretty much, was the Temple of Diana, or Artemis in the Greeks. And this was a, a huge religion at the Temple of, uh, of Diana, and they would worship it. And Diana was the goddess of fertility, the goddess of the woods, and the goddess of the hunt. So this is this important to know. And not only was was it important militari- militarily, commercially, and religiously, but it was also, this temple was so great and so magnificent, it was titled one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Okay, it was a huge, huge deal. Um, the temple was a major part of commerce in the city. It also, not only religious, but it lent to the commerce of the city, and it also lent to the industry, the tourism industry in the city. So. What it did was it created a lot of money for a lot of idol craftsmen. They'd make their idols, and the people would come into Ephesus, and they would sell their their silver or their gold idols. And it was a huge, hustling, bustling business during this time. Um, In addition to Diana worship, we see that uh, it was a major center of occultic practice and paganism uh, as a whole, occultic practice and the arts and paganism. It was to this city, the city of Ephesus, where Paul made a historic missionary journey. And we read about this in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19 is where it's located. Um, This was also the city which was going to be the home to the church where Paul penned this letter that we've been studying here at church. And it's called the letter to the Ephesians. So this was the city where Paul went. As it was Paul's customs, whenever he would go to a new city, he would go to the synagogues of the Jews first. And whenever he went to the the city in uh, in the synagogue in Ephesus, Like so many other cities beforehand, the Jews rejected the message of the risen Messiah. So after they rejected it, Paul, like he did time and time again, he came and he went to the Gentiles of the city. He went to the hall of Tyrannus. And here he stayed for two whole years. Two years preaching the gospel and preaching that Jesus Christ risen died for the sins of men. During this time, it says that all the Jews and the Gentiles in the whole province heard the word of the Lord. This is awesome because it means that Paul was very vocal and he was causing quite a stir, the fact that this message, this new message they were were being taught and heard was spreading and was spreading quickly. Uh, Not only that, but handkerchiefs and aprons that Paul had touched were sent to the sick people, people who were sick and demon-possessed and the sick were healed and the spiritually oppressed and spiritually possessed were delivered. You see, this kind of power was not known to the worshipers of Diana or to any of the occultic practices of the day. So whenever this message starts getting out and they see the power behind it, an uprising occurs, a riot occurs. And uh, but let me back up for a second. Prior to the uprising, uh, because of Paul's message and because of the gospel and the people believed it, they said they took all of their, a large part of the people took their occultic scrolls and basically had a public book burning. They went and they burnt all their occultic scrolls, turning away from those wicked practices and turning to the message and the gospel of Jesus Christ. They say the estimated value of everything that was burnt that day was close to half a million dollars. Now, today's standard, that's still a lot of money, but back in that day, that was a huge amount of money. A half a million dollars, I can't imagine the amount of scrolls that they threw into the fire. But this uh, caused a huge uprising in the city, a huge stir. And a, a, an idol maker named Demetrius didn't like it one bit. And he, he went around and he started stirring up the people, saying that this, this man's uh, teaching that says that, that idols that are made with hands are no, are no gods at all. Gods that are made with hands are no gods at all. He says, We, we stand to lo- lose the disrepute of Diana, it's gonna be uh, disreputable to her, it'll lose her majesty, and we're gonna lose our business, we're gonna lose our money. So they all rise up together and they, they create a riot in, in uh, contradiction and in standing against Paul however we see that through this riot the triumph of the Christian gospel took place because from the earliest days of Christianity and the earliest times of Paul Christianity made absolutely no peace whatsoever with idolatry it stood in stark contrast to the idolatry of the day and the false worship of false gods the fact is while Diana and the te- this great temple, which was the seven wonders of the world, uh, once captivated the religious minds and the commerce of the city. The fact is, today we have no worshipers of Diana. There is no one today that's, that's worshiping Diana. So Christianity, of course, today is one of the fastest growing religions still in the face of the earth, proving the, the superiority of the messages between the two. Because of Paul's preaching in Ephesus, a great body of believers were established in this city. And the letter that we study tonight is a direct address to the newfound church. And most likely, it wasn't only directed to the church of Ephesus, but it was a circular letter that was going to go to all the churches in the province of, of Ephesus. So tonight, the study that I want to, I want to talk about and where I, really, where I want to work my way to is Ephesians 4 through 5. And we're going to kind of go segmentally, piece by piece, and kind of walk through it and see what it says. But before we do that, because that's where it really talks about Christian living. What's expected of us if we're to be called followers of Christ? The, the expectation of our lifestyle and how we come, uh, come to God and how we relate to, to a lost world, what's the expectations? But b- before we get to that, I want to kind of lay a foundation to where, where Paul was gone in, in chapters 1 and 2. And I'm going to hit the highlights. We, we Obviously, for the sake of time, we can't go through everything. But I want to hit the highlights of it, okay? And if you have your Bibles with me tonight, uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. This will great, give us great insight to why it's incumbent upon us to walk out a sincere walk before God. And I want to just, just uh, remind us about this. This letter was written to believers. It was written to the, the new Christian church and those who were followers of Christ. And some of the things I'm going to look at here, Paul starts off with praising of God and, and talking about the benefits of serving God. The benefits. And what has what has God done for us in time and space? Ephesians 1, let's look at 4 and 5. This is what he says. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us, To the adoptions as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. So we see right here, Paul starts off and he says, First things first, we have been chosen by God. We did not choose God. God has chosen us. We are chosen by God before time began. He also talks about how we're predestined to the adoption as sons and daughters to God. Now, this is very important to to realize that in ancient Hebrew time and in biblical time, if you, if the Jews had a son or a daughter who was rebellious, who just was completely disobedient, scorned their mother and father at every turn. They had absolutely every right to uh, emancipate that kid, to say, hey, listen, you're no longer part of the family, go and leave. However, in this time and in this culture, we see that to have an adopted son or an adopted daughter, they had absolutely no legal authority, no right to emancipate them. Basically, once... You were adopted into the family. You couldn't be. You couldn't. You couldn't be kicked out. For better or for worse, you are part of the family. This is the verbiage that Paul uses right here to describe the relationship that we have with God. We were predestined to adoption by God. Therefore, it's God. It's God's doing. He brings us into a family, and we can rest and have peace and, and security in knowing that we are. We are the adopted children of God. He can't. He can't. Nor he will he kick us out. Let's go. Let's move on. First, uh, chapter one. Let's look at six through eight. Verses six through eight. To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. He has made us accepted in the beloved. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean? In different areas of the Bible, and especially right here in, in Ephesians, which we won't get to talk and discuss about tonight, the Gentiles were excluded from the, the, the people of God. They weren't part of the covenants. They were not part of the promises. Anything that God had promised, he had promised to the Jews. Even, we, we see this even in Jesus' day. Jesus did not come preaching to the Gentiles. Jesus only came to the Jews. There are a couple of instances in the Bible where Gentiles came up to Christ, and because of their great faith, which God responds to faith, because of their great faith, he, 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 he worked on their behalf. He did something for him. But the mainstay of Jesus' ministry here on the earth prior to his death, burial, and resurrection was specifically to the Jews. However, we see, we see in Christ that now we have been made part of the Beloved. We have been made part and incorporated into the the covenants and the promises of God, which we find blessing, we find favor, we find benefits, we find protection, and ultimately we find salvation. We have been made part of the beloved. It also says that in him we have redemption, to be redeemed. What does that mean that we're redeemed? The word has a connotation in the Greek right here, to be bought out of the slave market. To the purchase price of a slave, to be removed from the slave market, but not only to be removed to the slave market, but to be restored to our former self. Basically to have freedom. Not, not being, being bought out of a slave market to be a slave of someone else, or to be a servant of someone else, but bought out of the slave market to be free, to be restored to our original condition. What was Adam and Eve's original condition? It was freedom from sin. They had absolute freedom to rise above, and they didn't know sin. So this is what it, the, the, the connotation of redeemed is what it means, to be bought out of the slave market of sin. And we know that anyone who sins is a slave to sin, and the price for that sin is death. Romans three, uh, 3.23. Ephesians 1.11. Let's move on. In him we also have t- obtained an inheritance. You know, many people on this earth fight and vie, and, and, and siblings will fight over a, a parental inheritance. Sometimes it's just a little bit. Sometimes it's a lot. But, man, it's something we, we, we grasp for. We, we want to get as much as we possibly can. God, in his goodness and his graciousness, has promised us an inheritance. There are many different things that this inheritance includes. But one of the big things, and one of the things that's my favorite, is he promises us the kingdom. Okay? Not just to be a part of the kingdom, but promises us the kingdom. For the Bible tells us that we're going to rule and reign with Christ. We're, we're co-heirs with Christ and we're seated on his throne with him. So we're co-laborers, and we're going to be, have delegated authority and power in this new kingdom to run kingdom business. We will inherit the kingdom. It's one of the many things that's, that's uh, incorporated into our inheritance, okay? Let's go down. 13, chapter 13. Oh, man, I'm in trouble here tonight. There's no way. It's already 730. Okay. We're going to have to move, y'all. 113. In him you have also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. One of the blessings that we've been given is we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Okay? Uh, the verbiage used here in the Greek talks about how, you know, if you're going to purchase something, a, a, a large item, a large object, you have to give a down payment to say that basically I want it. I'm I'm putting my money down, and I'm going to purchase it, but here's the down payment towards that that object that I'm purchasing. This is what the Lord does when he seals us with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's down payment towards us for the full assurance of eternal life. It is our guarantee that we will indeed inherit the things that God has promised us. And finally, in chapter 1, we're going right here. We see that in 119, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Let's just go all the way. Far above principality and power, might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. He has worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This power... That raised Christ from the dead is the same power that works towards us. Read it again in 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe? We have resurrection power as a, as a promise to the believers. And what does this mean to have resurrection power? It means that if we look further in actually uh, Ephesians 2.6, we go a little further, it says that we have been raised up and seated with Christ in heavenly places. This power that we've been given is, is a power over all principality and power and demonic authority. We're no longer subject to the powers of death and the powers that would harass humanity on behalf of the of the dark side, if you will, okay? We've been given resurrection power, and that's power to tread over serpents and scorpions and all the powers of the enemy so that they may no way and means harm us in any way. So we see we've been chosen by God, we've been predestined to adoption, we've been accepted in the beloved, we have been redeemed, We have an inheritance waiting for us in eternity. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, and we have been given power in Christ. So Paul goes here, and first of all, he lists all the benefits. This is, to the praise of God, this is what God has done for you, to you whom have believed. This is the power of God. Now chapter 2, he takes a sharp turn here in chapter 2, and a sharp turn indeed. He turns from the blessings and the benefits of God to the condition of man. What was our condition prior to God's intervention in our life? He turns towards man's sinfulness and the need for salvation. Let's look at, uh, let's just read through uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath. Paul addresses believers who are once stuck in spiritual darkness. It's important we see that Paul says right here, we weren't simply impaired, we weren't simply injured or kind of uh, you know debilitated, Paul uses the word dead. We were spiritually dead. My question to you tonight, can a dead man do anything for himself? Or, or anybody else for that matter? Absolutely not. Through our sinful nature, we were dead. We were dead in trespasses and in sin. Not physically dead, but spiritually. You see, the problem is that even though we had the power to choose... We were dead to the things of God. As a result of that, that death, that spiritual inertness, that spiritual just, Paul says, death, we had absolutely no desire to search out the things of God. We had absolutely no desire to live out the things of God. You see, we followed a completely different course, and the course that we followed was at 180 degree odds to the course that God would have us to walk. We did it willfully. We did it freely. We had a sense of what we were doing was exactly what we wanted to do. And with respect towards the spiritual things, we were dead. Verse 3. Among whom you also once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. This is the condition of every man born on this earth. This is the initial condition of fallen man. Paul elaborates and says that we continuously indulged in sinful pleasures in things that were contrary to God's way. Once again, man's problem is not that he didn't have a choice. Man had every single choice. The fact was he did not desire God. No way, no shape, no form. We did not desire God. You see, in man's natural state, our heart's desires are sinful and continuously turned away from God. In this position, being spiritually dead, we fulfilled our lustful desires and we became estranged from God. We were in the position by nature to be under the wrath, the wrath of God. Now, I would like to take a moment here to clear up some misconceptions, okay? Because we live in a society that would teach us and tell us that man is basically good. Man is, in, is initially and basically good, and we have to learn how to do wrong. We have to learn how to be sinful, if you will. Not only in society tells us that, but even some churches are telling us that, that we're inherently good people, and it be, is because of our greatness that God, hey, picked us out and said, hey, yeah, come join the church. Come be a part of, part of what I'm doing here on the earth. We're good. However, let's think about life. Let's think about real life, and it may, it may teach you something a little bit different. I'll ask you a question Do we have to teach a young child to be selfish? Do we have to teach a young child to go up to another child who just took up a toy he wasn't even playing with, he was playing with another toy, but yet he's going to go up to that child and take his toy and say, mine. And that's probably one of the first words a kid will learn is mine. Mine, 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 mine. It becomes repetitive. Selfishness. Did you have to teach that child to be selfish? Did you have to teach a child to throw a tantrum whenever he or she did not get his or her way? Is that something that's taught? Better yet, did you have to teach a child not to bite somebody in anger? Not to put teeth marks in the arm of another kid? Believe me, I saw that with my nephew here about a year ago, a year and a half old, biting other kids. You know, no, that's not good. Did his mom teach him how to bite somebody? Was it a learned effect? No, of course it isn't. It's inherent in our nature that we do these things. Before we know right and wrong in our minds, our very nature's gravitated towards these things. The fact is we have to teach them to be kind, we have to teach people how to be patient, we have to teach them to share, and we have to teach them not to bite other people when they're angry. The fact is good is not the default position of man. Goodness must be learned, it must be taught, and it must be accepted and submitted to. On the subject of goodness. Because society will tell us that we're, we're basically good people. We see it everywhere we talk, everywhere we, we, we talk with people, and we kind of interact. I guarantee you, if you were to ask a hundred people in any, in any walk of life, would you consider yourself to be a good person? In wherever you are right here right now, would you consider yourself to be a good, moral person? I guarantee you, 98 to 99 out of those hundred people would say yeah. I'm pretty good. I mean, I show up on work on time. I pay my bills on time. I love my family. I take care of my family. I've never been to jail. I've never, I've never done any criminal activity. I've never done any, any malicious harm to other people. Yeah, I consider myself to be a pretty good person. And then what logically follows with people who have the mindset of goodness, inert goodness, would say that if there is a God, if there is a good God, like the Bible says, that God is good, then a good God would never send a good person to hell. He would never banish somebody who has lived a relatively good life to a place of eternal, uh, eternal torment and banishment. You see, with this mindset, we never ever stop to think what is society's definition of what is good and compare that to what is a holy, just, righteous God's definition of good. Matter of fact, if we measure it, it wouldn't even be eternally or infinitely close. Our goodness is down here compared to God, which may be good in society's view, but in the person's view, that it matters. Because the Bible tells us that it is given to men once to die, then after this, is the judgment. We're not going to be accountable to society. We're going to be accountable to our Creator. And He sets the standard of what's good, He sets the standard of what's right and what's righteousness. Matter of fact, I would even submit to you tonight. The fact that God is good is actually a huge problem for man. It's a problem for us that God's a good, holy, and just God. You say, how so? Because the fact is us as humans are not. We're not good. You, granted, we may do good things from time to time, but in our, in our very nature, we are not good people. So, what does God consider good? What is good? We have something called the moral law. And whether men admit to it or not, every man knows the moral law. It's the law that tells you whenever you do wrong to somebody, you harm somebody unjustly, or you steal from somebody, or you lie to somebody, that it's wrong. That something pricks you in the back of your conscience and says, you know what, I shouldn't be doing this. Now, men have seared their conscience. You know how you sear your conscience? You do those wrong things over and over and over and over again. And you continue to do them until you know what happens? They no longer feel so wrong anymore. Matter of fact, they may feel right. And it, it, it may be, oh, honey, this is, this, is, this is the way to go. But let's take a quick test. And just a quick test, okay? Because we look at God's standard of goodness and righteousness and rightness. And it's codified, the moral law is codified in the Ten Commandments. So we'll look at it and we we'll say, have you ever told a lie? Once. All it takes is one has anybody ever told a lie? How many lies have we told? Sometimes, dozens, hundreds, thousands. I mean, I'm I'm up here with my hand up as well too. How many times have you taken something that did not belong to you, regardless of the value, regardless if it was a, if it was something as as little as a paperclip or a pencil, or a million dollars from a bank? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever committed adultery? Jesus raises that bar tenfold when he says, you know what? You've heard it said of old, you should not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who's looked at another person with lust has already committed adultery in their heart. Have you ever been disobedient to your parents growing up? Once, twice, three times. Always disobedient. Always disobedient. That was me, man. I was a disobedient little kid. You know, I told my parents what they wanted to hear. Then I'd go around, turn around, do what I want to do. Four out of the ten. That's only four. How well do we line up? How well do we stack up? And there may be some of us here tonight that says, well, you know what, Colby? Just because I've told a few lies in my life does not make me a liar. Just because I've taken a thing or two that didn't belong to me doesn't make me a thief. Just because I've looked with lust doesn't make me an adulterer. I've never committed adultery. The question I present to you is how many times do you have to murder somebody before you're a murderer? How many? How many? Isn't it true that if you, if you murder some, one time, you'd be considered a murderer? And so it is the same across the board, with, with our lies and our adulterous and our immoral thoughts and our impure thoughts and the acts of, uh, of immorality that we commit. By God's standard, we are not good. Matter of fact, James raises the bar pretty darn high in James 2.10, and he says that you've heard it said that a uh, uh, pardon me, he says that it, it, even if you do keep the whole entire law, you've kept everything perfectly, the whole thing, but you've stumbled in one point, one area you've stumbled in, you've become guilty of the whole thing. So it's not on a curve. God doesn't grade on a curve, y'all. One transgression of his law is enough. You see, we have transgressed God's law, for which the penalty is death. Physical death, yes, but an eternity banished from his presence. And if God is good, If we're banished from that presence of goodness, what's the opposite of goodness? No goodness at all. No good thing is going to exist outside of God's presence. The fact is, God is good, and we are not. We're not even morally good, not even morally neutral. We are born fallen. That is why we are sinners by nature and exposed to the wrath of God. Now, if I left this here tonight, this would be an extremely depressing lesson. Would it not? The fact that we're, 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 by nature, damned under God's wrath, eternally banished from God because we're sinners. We've transgressed God's law, which, by the way, God's law is not some list of do's and don'ts that God lists. Did you know that? They're actually an extension of God's character. They're who God is. You know why it's a sin to lie? You know why it's wrong to lie? Not because your mom and dad said it was wrong. Not because your preacher said it was wrong. Not even because his book calls it to be wrong. The fact of the matter is it's wrong because God is truth. And anything that violates truth violates God's character, his nature, and his person. That's why it's wrong to lie. That's why it's wrong to steal. Because God is giving. God is kind. That's why it's wrong to be selfish. Because God is unselfish. And so forth and so on. His list of the laws is merely a reflection of his character. And whenever we transgress that, whenever we break that, we don't just break some some arbitrary law. We break God's very nature. We transgress it. Now, once again, this would be a depressing place to, le- to leave, leave us here, okay? And I won't. Because we look down in chapter 2, verses 4, and I love this. But God, but God, in spite of this, in spite of our, 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 our deadness, our spiritual death and transgression and sin, but God, who was rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God made a way out. We owed a debt that we could not pay. And it was God because of his goodness and his love and God's graciousness. His graciousness. God is gracious. That's why he had grace on us. You see, this is God's love towards us. That while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That means that Whenever I was still sinning, God had me in mind to save me and to pay the price. Because what Jesus Christ actually did for us, he lived the life that I was supposed to live. You understand? You know what God's standard of goodness towards him would be? And the only acceptable form of goodness would be? Sinless perfection. Sinless perfection was a standard by which God says, this is what you have to meet. And if you fall any shorter than that, sorry bud. You missed the boat. The fact is, you're like, well, who then could be saved? Sinless perfection, who could be saved? And it's like, my point exactly. No one. No one. So what man could not do, Jesus Christ did. He lived the life that we were supposed to live. Then, after he did that, he paid the price that we were supposed to pay. And you know what that price was? It's depicted 2,000 years ago on Calvary's bloody cross. That was the price that we owe towards God. Death. And not only death, but a violent, wrathful, just a bloody death. That was what was due to us. But God in his goodness, God in his graciousness, in the person of Jesus Christ, lived, this, lived it for us, did it for us, and then paid the price for us. Now the Bible says, and this is the gospel that Paul preached to the Ephesians, whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord, whosoever would have faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, shall be saved. Not only did, did Paul preach it, but he witnessed it. He witnessed the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, as did all the other apostles, by the way. They witnessed the resurrected Christ. Let me tell you something. Men do not die for what they know is a lie. If these men proclaimed to know Jesus Christ as a person and say that he was God's son and he was raised from the dead, then undergo 40 years of persecution, ridicule, being beaten, and then turn around and, and die a martyr's death. No. That's against human nature. No man dies for something that they willingly know is a lie. No, all the apostles signed in their blood and said, indeed, Christ is risen. And he did pay the price for mankind. And because he was risen from the grave, risen on the third day, he defeated death, hell, and the grave. Therefore, it has no more power over us. And he says, whomsoever would call upon my name. Whoever would repent of their sins, turn from those things which put Christ on the cross, those things that dishonor God, and turn towards him and trust to, to have faith in Christ. That, that, it, faith, y'all, is not a mental ascent. Okay? So many of us believe that's a mental ascent. If I believe in my mind that Jesus Christ died for my sins and rose on the third day, then, hey, me and God's okay. But... Faith is so much more than that. Faith is something that causes us to entrust our lives into the one in whom we claim to believe, to have faith and repentance. We'll see that. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Christ was God's expression of his great love. Verse 8. For by grace... You have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Grace, unmerited favor, something that you did not deserve. Unmerited favor, undeserved benefit. By God and his graciousness and his willingness to bestow upon us unearned benefits, we receive salvation. It's nothing that we've done. It's no good works that we can claim to. Matter of fact, in in this verse right here, it says even the faith that's required is a gift of God. Because let me tell you something. Who Paul was preaching to right here, they knew what grace was. Grace was unmerited and undeserved. So to come back and say that it's not of yourself, that was already unknown. We know that grace is not of ourselves. So what was Paul saying? That this is not of yourselves. Even the faith that we've been given is a gift of God. This is the gospel message that, that, that Paul preached to the Ephesians. Verse 10. By the way, this is one of the most chopped off, continuing thoughts that people talk about in the Bible. When it talks about, for grace you are saved through faith, not of works, not of yourself, selfless. any man should boast. 10 goes on to tell us, why? Why did God have grace upon us? Why did, did he activate faith in our hearts to believe in him and receive this great gift of salvation? Why? For we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in. You see, even though Paul is teaching crystal clear that we receive salvation by grace through faith, he leaves absolutely no room for antinomian heresy. And you say, Anti what? Antinomian heresy. And ball down into a simple statement this is what antinomian heresy is taught. It was taught in Paul's day, it was taught in the early church fathers' day. And you know what? It's alive and well in the church today. This is what it says. Since I have saved by grace through faith, then all I have to do is believe. That's all I have to do is simply believe with my mind. No matter what I do after I have a profession of faith, it doesn't matter. My works don't matter. My works absolutely don't matter. So there's no law to me because I'm not under the law anymore. So therefore, it does not matter what I do. This is antinomianism. This is the an antinomian heresy, because you know what? Our works do matter. We're not saved by our works, but our works prove that we have genuine faith. We are saved through faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. This means that true faith will manifest itself in the performance of good works. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Makes a good point. Jesus talks about it. How am I doing on time here? Oh, good night. I'm not even a third through and we're about to have to dismiss. Okay. chapter 7 verse 22 Matthew and this is Jesus speaking many notice that word not a few many will say to me in that day Lord Lord have we not prophesied in your name have we not cast out demons in your name have we not done many wonderful works in your name then I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness. Basically, they were saying, I confessed to you as Savior, but I never knew you, and I never proved through my life that you were my Lord. You know what Lord means? Owner. The owner. So we really have to ask ourselves, Am I trusting in Christ for my salvation? But am I also trusting in Him and following Him Him not only as my Savior, but my Lord? Because Jesus says that many will come to me in that last day and say, Lord, Lord. When things are mentioned twice in the Bible, it denotes intimacy. Like there was, Lord, we know you, we knew you. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who've practiced lawlessness. You who lived as, as, as if there was no consequence. You believed in me, and your life never, ever changed. You never repented from your sins. You've never turned. You've never followed after me. This of course does not mean perfection. We're all still sinners. We all still sin. We all still fall short. And there's grace and there's mercy for those times. But the fact of the matter is the proof of our faith is a changed life that we lean, we lean, we, uh, lean towards Christ. So let's recap. We were dead toward God in trespasses and sin. We were by nature children of wrath. But God who was rich in mercy and great in love reached out to us through Christ. Christ paid the price for our sins and now offers us eternal life. We have been chosen, we have been adopted, we have been made part of the beloved in the covenants and the promises of God. We have been redeemed from the slave market of sin. We have been given an inheritance. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit who is the down payment of our eternal life. We have been given power and delegated authority with Christ over all the powers of darkness. And it's because of these things Paul goes on in chapter 4 to say what he does about this is how now because you know these things and because you understand these things this is how we should live this is how we should do y'all give me 10 minutes it's almost 8 o'clock right now 8 10 we'll be out of here Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 I beseech you therefore as a prisoner of the Lord Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing one another in love. You see, to be be called by God out of the world and into the body of, of Christ is one of the highest vocations possible. Think about this, the honor that God bestows upon us to call us out of a dark and dying world, by the way, which is so temporary. The Bible says that this life is but a breath that you breathe out for a short time on a cold winter morning that appears for a short time that vanishes away, never to be seen again. This temporary, short life that the creator of heaven and earth, the one who created the moon, the sun, the stars, the one who created the mountains and the rivers and the waterfalls and the valleys, the one with the power to create all this calls us personally, with a personal invitation, come out from, come out from the, the, the dying world. Come out and serve me, and be a part of my family, and do the things together in life that I would have you to do. This is the highest vocational uh, calling possible. You see, the church in the New Testament is made of those who are called out of darkness, out of damnation, for paganism to become members of Christ's body. Paul makes it clear that we are not worthy of this. He stresses that time and time again. It is not because we are worthy. We are made children of God because God is utterly and utmost gracious. Once again, unmerited. Nothing that we've done because of who he is and his own goodness. But after we are called to be his children, in response to that unspeakable gift, we should do everything in our power to walk lives worthy of this calling. The motivation and the stimulation to walk out this this life and to walk a, a walk that's worthy of the calling that we have is because of God's unmerited favor by which he has saved us, the gift of eternal life and out of graciousness. Now, that's the primary motivation. Let me give you a secondary motivation. Because blessings follow obedience. Let me tell you something. When you walk obediently before God, you walk a blessed life. Whenever you choose to do life God's way, instead of our way, we walk a blessed life. And God honors us in every area of life. Not just with money, not just with work, not just with business or promotions, but every area of your life. Four. Chapter 4, verses 17 through 18. Therefore, I, I, I say to you, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. You see, we ha- who have come to a place in our life when we have a mature understanding of the things of God, the believer is not going to walk, talk, or act like the world does. Those who are ignorant of God's word, who are ignorant of the things of God, and who don't even have God in their thinking, the the thought of God and the thought of what God would have and the things that honor God in their life never even come to to their mind. We're not to walk that way. You see, the worldly mind is never, never theocentric. Theo meaning God, centric meaning centered. The worldly mindset is never God-centered. However, the Christian life and the Christian mind should always, always be God-centered. God must be at the center, informing our understanding of life and also shaping our opinions. This is the way we're called. This is the way we're called to walk. Verse 19, speaking of those who don't have God in their hearts, don't have God in their minds, nor do they think about God in their minds, he said, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, or or sexual immorality, okay, to work all uncleanness with greediness. Since they do not have God in their minds, they do not have God in their actions. Their mind has become darkened, their hearts have become hardened. Because of these things, they have given themselves over to sensuality, sensual lifestyles that rest on immorality and greed. Think about that in in the world today. Sexual immorality is the norm. It's just the way we—I say we—but I'm talking collectively as the world. It's the way we live life to be sexually immoral, and not only that, but we only live life once. So, therefore, whatever we can get in this life, and the, whatever we have to do to get ahead and get above, no matter who we have to walk over, no matter who we have to trample on, we'll do it because we only have this one life to live. So, therefore, I'm gonna do what's pleasurable to me. I'm gonna I'm live my life of pleasure, and I'm gonna live my life of getting getting ahead in life, no matter what the cost. This is the world's way of thinking, is it not? Does that not bear witness in the world that we live in today? Once again, it is not to be so with those who call themselves Christians. The ones who who are followers of Christ and follow him. Verse 20. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. The message of the gospel has stroked many auditory nerves. And many people have indeed heard the message in the gospel. doesn't mean every single person who's heard it has been taught by him and, and has had, had that heart knowledge and that heart transformation that's required, that, that, as Jesus talks about in John 3, to be born again, to have a spiritual regeneration in our hearts and lives. Just because we hear it and we mentally ascend to it, that doesn't mean we have salvation, y'all. And that's, that's getting taught a lot of places that, hey, if you just believe it, just believe it, you know. The fact is, we live in a society that doesn't have a biblical value system anymore. We don't. We once did. We, want, we once held up the Bible above all of the books, and we said, this is the book by which we live by. And it was the norm. It was a standard in America. And because of it is my firm belief that America has been the most generous, prosperous, and peaceful nation ever to exist. What's happened in the last generation? Quickly over the last 10, 15 years. The Bible has been brought up for the very word of God, something that, that we ought to farm our lives around, to being brought down to the level of hate speech now. If you believe the Bible to be true, and you believe God at his word when he says, oftentimes that'll make you a bigot. Oftentimes that'll make you hateful. It'll make you intolerant, because we agree with what the Bible says. And it's no coincidence that we see in right before our very eyes our prosperity leave us, our peace leave us? Our security leave us? You know, the, the Bible is true and it says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Let me tell you something, folks. We live in an area right now of post-Christian society, and we're quickly moving to a level of hostile Christian society. I, so, 10 years ago, people would not have said <clears throat> what's going on today was impossible. It was impossible f- for, for all these things and all this animosity towards Christian beliefs to happen in the United States of America. I mean, come on, this is America. The next 10 years, if we're still around, we're on the verge of hate speech. We're, we're on the verge of some real persecution. So we better get ready. We better be solid in where we stand in Christ. We better be solid in our convictions and know, know in whom we have believed. You know, and because we live in this society, now societal norms, it kind of becomes easy sometimes for us to be like, well, you know, everyone's doing it, everyone's sleeping around. No one's faithful to their covenant of marriage. Everyone lies, cheats, and does, has unethical behavior. And, and sometimes we, get to the, we can easily get to the mindset that the world's doing it. it. It's okay. It's acceptable. However, I'll say once again, it's not to the world in which we'll stand accountable to. The only one who's, whose opinion matters is the one whom we will stand before, and we won't be judged by society or what man says when we'll be judged by him. And what he says is right. And it doesn't matter what our society says is right or wrong. If it's in violation of the word of God and the truth of God, it's wrong. Period. It doesn't matter if it was 100 years ago or 2,000 years ago or today. God's word is truth. And truth does not change. Ever. Truth does not change. 22. Verse 22. Let's go all the way to 24. I'm almost there, y'all. I'm hitting the home stretch here. If indeed you have been heur- you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man with grows, which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and true holiness. We are to put off our old ways. We, we are to put off the ways in which we once lived life. Now, I know that all of us in here may not all have a, a, you know, a worldly lifestyle which we came from. Some of us, by God's grace may have been brought into this, brought to the truth of God and, and learned of God from an early age and never had to experience some of these, uh, these things and, and these desires and the, these you know, fleshly habits that can become habits and very, very hard to break on our own natural strength. So not, of us, not all of us are there, but I would dare say most of us are. A lot of us are, and we're to put all those old ways. We're to turn off and put them, put them away and put on the new life that Christ has given us. You see, the old man, whenever we become born again, whenever we have faith and repentance towards Christ, the old man is, is given a death blow, okay? Bam. However, he is not dead. He's just knocked out temporarily, okay? The fact is we found our freedom in taking off the old man by denying ourselves occasion for sin, if you go into a place where you know, hey, I've slipped up here time and time again. This is my area of weakness. This is my area of struggle. I avoid those places, and I put on the new man. How do we put on the new man, and how do we walk in that new man? We do it by the means of grace, the, the areas and the disciplines that God has gifted us with to keep us strong. You know what the two major ones are? Can anybody think with the two major means of grace that God has given us? One of them is this right here. Like Josh said earlier, this, this word is powerful and alive, sharper than t- any two-edged sword. We apply this word to our life. We saturate our minds with it. We find our, our thought patterns begin to change. The way we think about life and the way we think about our old habits and our old sins begin to change. You have to feed a new man. You have to feed a dish right here. And the second means of grace, there are many more, but the two major ones is prayer. Fellowship with God. Getting before God in a quiet time and saying, God, this is who I am. And not just once a week. Or not just on Sunday mornings, we come read the Bible and, and pray, but having it a daily lifestyle. That's how we put off the old man. We deny ourselves occasions for sin. And we put on the new man by walking in the means of grace. We don't have the power to do this alone. Okay? That's the thing too. And thank goodness it's not on our own strength because we don't have the strength to do it. God gifts us with this through the power of His Holy Spirit. His Spirit, which is the helper, comes alongside the indwelling spirit that we have and strengthens us to live a holy and righteous life before God. Amen. There's more than I want to cover tonight, y'all, but I'm just out of time. But this is what I, want to, I do want to hit on right here. The summary of Christian living. And this is the, this is the summary that some of them I, I've hit on and some of them I haven't. But I just want to read them to you tonight. The summary of Christian living that Paul talks about here, and go home and read it, Ephesians 4 and going into 5. They're not recommendations about how a Christian should live. They're not recommendations. They say this is the way a Christian who is legitimate, a Christian who is truly born again, ought to walk. You ought to walk this way. We have to walk worthy of our calling. We have to walk in lowliness, gentleness, patience, bearing with other people in love. We no longer walk as the world walks, in disobedience towards God and in sinful pleasures. We're to put to death the old fleshly desires. We're put, to put on our new life in Christ and righteousness and holiness. We don't lie, we don't steal, we don't cheat. We don't go on in unrighteous anger, which leads to bitterness and resentment and malice and has become a root of everything that's been wrong in the world when you're talking about wars and harm towards other people. We speak with grace towards other people. We give, we give people, as God has given to us, unmerited favor. You, you may have hurt me. You may have said hurtful things to me, but you know what? I'm not going to say hurtful things back to you. I'm going to speak graciously towards you. Set aside filthy language. We walk and speak uprightly, pleasing the Lord, instead of causing him sorrow by walking in sin. The Bible says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Spirit of God. That means cause great sorrow. Think about it, a time in your life when you've, you've undergone great sorrow over something, something that deeply hurt you, and you were so upset by it that you just grieved over it and you, was, you were made sorrowful. You know, we can do that to God. Sometimes we think God's up there and all powerful and he doesn't really care about what we're doing. But Paul says right here, and I didn't get to it, he says that we grieve God whenever we walk sinfully and disobedient. It hurts his heart whenever we do that. That's the relationship part. However, we make God smile whenever we walk in kindness, whenever we're tenderhearted, whenever we forgive others as he has forgiven us. You know, we, we have a little bit of fear and trembling if we really stop to think about the Lord's Prayer. Whenever it says, forgive me as I forgive those. Forgive me as I forgive others. Now, I can tell you firsthand, I haven't been that great in forgiving others. And if God used the standard of the way I've, been, I've forgiven, now, now, thankfully, I've overcome and I've been able to walk a more of a spirit of forgiveness and not bitterness and whatnot because God... God works all things out. He's delivered. But man, if God used that same measure that I've used towards people with unforgiveness in my life, I would never be forgiven of anything. But we were to walk into forgiveness and forgive others the way he has forgiven us. We were to imitate God who loves us and laid down his life for us. You know, Jesus Christ was the exact expression of God Almighty. He was the exact person in nature and character of God. Matter of fact, when Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, Jesus said, Philip, I'm right here. You don't see me? He was the exact nature and expression of God. What did Jesus do? He laid down his life. He served other people. He laid down his life and did not do his own pleasure, but did the the pleasure of the Father. We are to imitate God, and if we are to imitate God, we imitate Christ. Lay down our lives to God and to others. Flee sexual immorality. Flee greed. Walk in purity and contentment with what we have. We walk as children of light in goodness, righteousness, and truth. So, I mean, what are we going to do with what we, what we know? I know many of us in here tonight know the things that we talked about, about our own sinfulness before God and our own shortcomings before God and our true stance and how good we really are. We know those things. Believe you me, I know those things about me, how, how, far, I've, how far I've fallen short in the past. The fact is, what do you do with them? You know, do you continue to live life in, in, in just cruise control, and just kind of, you know, hey, yeah, I'm saved, I'm born again, but I just kind of cruise with God? Or do you get up and you, and you really do the things that God calls us to do? The choice is ours to make, you know? Let's bow our heads in prayer.